the fear of God. This is our final week of that study. So for those of you who have been with us throughout this sermon series, I hope that you have a better understanding today of the fear of God than you did three weeks ago. I'd like to begin this morning by summarizing where we've been so far in this sermon series, and I'll do that by speaking directly to you God-fearing Christians. I know we're not all Christians here this morning, but I want to summarize where we've been so far in this series by speaking directly to those of you who are God-fearing Christians by reminding you how the fear of God has developed in you. First, there was a day when you did not fear God. And some of you remember that. Human beings by nature, do not fear God. They are not interested in God. They are not concerned with God. They deny God or they hate God. You at one time, according to Romans 8, 7, you were hostile to God and you did not want to submit to Him. And you did not want to submit to him because he was, to put it lightly, unsupportive of your self-centered life. And so you and I said, no thank you. Psalm 10.4 says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him All his thoughts are, there is no God. So there was a day when you did not fear God, Christian. Then one day, here's a very important phrase that you've heard me saying over and over and over again. Then one day, by God's grace. One day, by God's grace, you faced your soul in the mirror. And you couldn't escape what you saw. You couldn't unsee it. You were a sinner. You were one of the bad guys. You were on the wrong team with everyone else. And you were dishonoring God from the inside out. And you saw that in light of God's holiness. So you saw your sins against His perfections. Your wrong against his right. And when you did, you feared. 
You feared his judgment and his wrath. You felt Job 37, verses 23 and 24. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. And you did. You feared him. And that fear that you felt was setting you up to understand and receive mercy from God. John Bunyan talks about the importance of those first fears of God. And he said, No fears, no grace. Though there is not always grace where there is the fear of hell, yet to be sure, there is no grace where there is no fear of God. His work was not done in you. God had a surprise for you. By His grace, you came to know His forgiveness. Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you, God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You came to know that the God who stands ready to judge you was also standing willing to save you. You came to learn that the lion would rather pardon you than punish you. You came to know through the gospel message, you came to know his mercy. And when you did, your fear became another kind of fear. A fear that no longer drove you away from God, a fear that drove you to God. And Christian, by God's grace, you have been fearing Him ever since. It changed you. It changed everything. Your fear of God today, we talked about this last week if you were here. Your fear of God today is not like those early days when you first faced the truth, when you were terrified like a criminal before an executioner, but now your fear is a, a serious and deep reverence for God that leads you to please Him in all things. And that should be where you are today, Christian. That should be what this fear of God looks like in you, a serious and deep reverence for God that leads to a desire to please Him in all things. Here's the image. You are like a child before His loving Father. And you are looking to please your loving Father who in God's case is your ultimate source of love and security.
And out of reverence, you live to please him. So you might be thinking, what is left in a sermon series on the fear of God? I mean, we just went from baby Christian to mature Christian. And, and this is how the fear of God develops in a Christian. So this morning, this morning I would like to look at another fear that seems to be easier for us and often replaces our fear of God. It's a common fear. It's ugly and destructive. It is what the Bible calls the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25, and then I'll pray. The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, will you fill our minds with truth now? Will you fill our hearts with affections for you? And will you bend our wills to obey and honor you by the preaching of your word and the working of your Holy Spirit within us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's an outline of the sermon this morning. There will be two assertions and two questions. Two assertions and two questions. The two biblical assertions that we'll make are number one, Christians fear God. And number two, Christians, unfortunately, don't only fear God. So those are the two assertions. Christians fear God and Christians don't only fear God. And then two questions. Question number one. Why do Christians fear man? And then the second question, how do I stop fearing man? So we'll start with two assertions. Number one, we've looked at this. Christians fear God. Christians deeply revere God. Christians' fear of God leads them to please God. Here's another way to think about the fear of God. Our lives as Christians are controlled by our fear of God. We are His loyal subjects. We are His children. We are His workmanship. We are His creation. We are His handiwork. And we care what He wants. 
We care what he thinks. We care about God's opinion. We are after God's approval. And all this because we fear him. We have a deep reverence for God that leads us to please him in all things. It's here in 1 Samuel 12, 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. I consider who God is, how great he is, the great things he has done. And now I fear him. I revere him. I want to faithfully please him in all things. Christians fear God. However, number two. And this is unfortunate, but it is a reality. Christians like you and me, we don't only fear God. We should, but we don't. God is not the only one we fear. And we often struggle with this fear of man. Which Proverbs calls a snare or a dangerous and destructive trap. Our lives are often controlled by it. This fear of man. So, what is it? What does the Bible say? How are we helped to understand what? What is this that Proverbs talks about? What is this thing other than God that we often fear that is a snare, that is a trap? What is the fear of man? Now for clarification, I'm not talking about the appropriate fear that you and I may experience when we might be physically harmed by someone or something. That's a, an appropriate fear of man, isn't it? And some of you have experienced that. It is the kind of fear that, that you experience before a bully or a vindictive colleague or a violent spouse or someone who verbally mocks you or Christian persecution or terrorism or racism. Those are legitimate fears of physical harm. But it's not primarily the fear of man that Proverbs 29 and Jeremiah 17 and the rest of our scriptures are talking about. We are talking about a fear of man that controls us. A fear of what man wants. A fear of what man thinks about me. An over-interest in man's opinion. A living for the approval of men. Remember fear of God. 
Fear of God. I want what He wants. I care about what He thinks of me. I care about God's opinion of me. I'm living for His approval. Fear of man. I care what you want. I care what you think about me. I have an over-interest in your opinion of me. I'm living on and on in the moment for your approval, not God's. It's controlling me. It's controlling what I say. It's controlling what I think. It's controlling what I do. So the Bible calls that the fear of man. We have different words for it, like peer pressure. Peer pressure. That's the fear of man. So I'm doing things, often not right things, things I know aren't right because I'm being pressured by peers. I'm caring more about what they think than what God thinks. When we get older, we change the term to people-pleasing. Peer pressure, you know, that's an adolescent thing. Us adults don't struggle with that. So we call it peer pressure or codependency. These are all talking about the same things. It is this fear of being rejected by man. It's a fear of not measuring up to men. It's a fear of not being liked. It is sometimes a fear of who I really am being exposed J.C. Ryle, the 19th century pastor and theologian in England, he wrote a very helpful little booklet, an essay called Thoughts for Young Men. Encourage all of you young men to read it. Encourage all of you parents of boys to read it with your boys at some point. Thoughts for Young Men. And in this booklet, he says that he thinks that Young men are especially susceptible to this fear of man. And he actually compares, I hope you're not offended. I was a young man. I'm still youngish. He compares in this little booklet, he compares young men to dead fish floating in the stream of human opinion. And so wherever the opinion goes and wherever the stream goes, that's where many young men go. And so the opinion of the day often becomes a young man's religion, his creed, his Bible, his God. The fear of man. So let me show you this in the Bible. Listen to this in the Bible. Here's the fear of man. 1 Samuel 15, 24. Saul. Saul feared men. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Did you hear that? Saul said, I sinned because I obeyed people. I cared too much about what they thought. I cared too much about their opinion. I was living for their approval. They were controlling me. I feared them, and so I obeyed them rather than God. I sinned. Peter, if you think about it, struggled with pleasing people over God. Remember Peter when he was in the courtyard during the 
mock trial of Jesus. He feared man. He ended up trembling and lying and denying Christ before a little servant girl because he feared what might happen to him. He didn't do the right thing. Later, even later, Paul goes after Peter. Do you remember that? I think it's in Acts chapter 10. And Paul writes about it in Galatians, said, I opposed Peter to his face. I got in his face because Peter was fearing the Jewish leaders and the Jewish believers and what they would think of him. So when they came to town, he stopped eating with the new Gentile Christians because he was afraid. He was fearing man. Now, to Peter's credit, he had clearly matured by the time he wrote his first letter. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, written years later. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So here's how it works. The fear of God leads to pleasing God. The fear of man leads to pleasing man. The fear of God leads to pleasing God. The fear of man leads to pleasing man. Listen to that in more scripture. John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. That verse used to be my prayer as I sat in this seat before every sermon. God, help me not to love the glory that comes from all these people more than the glory that comes from you over this next hour. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Do you struggle with this? Do you struggle with this fear of man? If you do, I don't often do this, but I do want to recommend a resource to you. I tried to get it here by this morning. It's not here. It will be here next Sunday. Probably the best and most helpful book I've ever read, On the Fear of Man, written by a man named Ed Welch. And the name of the book is When People Are Big and God is Small. So just keep that in the back of your mind or write it down. When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. If by the end of this sermon you've just crumbled down into a little pile of feeling like a failure, which may be the case for some of us, like me, you may be looking for a resource to help you see in the Bible where it talks about this. So, when people are big and God is small. 
So do you struggle with this fear of man? Some of you may be thinking at this point, no. No. I don't give a rip what people think about me. It is true. Some of you care much less about that clearly than others. But I think you still might. I mean, this is everywhere in the Bible. So let me just uh, read off to you uh, 12 questions. 12 questions. And these are actually taken from the beginning of that book. I just just mentioned. I'll read these questions quickly to help all of you feel like failures in this regard. (laughs) Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Even as adults, the need for the perfect family, the perfect spouse, perfect child, the job title, the perfect house in the right neighborhood, the right physical physical, uh, appearance, hair, face, clothes, body. Ever struggled with peer pressure? Are you overcommitted? Do you have a difficult time saying no even when wisdom indicates that you should? Do you need something from people closest to you, like your spouse or your close friends? Do you need them to listen to you? Do you need them to love you? Do you need them to respect you? Is self-esteem a critical concern for you? Do you ever feel as if you might be exposed as an imposter? Do you always second-guess decisions you make because of what other people might think? Are you afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in other people's eyes? Do you feel empty or meaningless? Do you get easily embarrassed? Do you ever lie, especially little white lies? Are you jealous of other people? Do other people often make you angry or depressed? Do you avoid people? Finally, have you ever been too timid to share your faith in Christ because of what others might think? This fear of man shows up in many different places. And if you answered yes to any of those questions, then you have probably struggled with the fear of man. It means that people have a degree of control over you. Control over what you think. Control over what you do. Control over what you say. Think about it, friends. I fear whatever it is that controls me or whatever it is that I think controls me. I fear those things that I need, those things that I must have, those things that I would die without. I would be devastated not to have. I am obsessed with. Whatever that is for you, it holds control over you. And when that's man, it's the fear of man. God should be the only answer. 
I should want what God wants. I should ultimately and only value God's opinion of me. I should live only for the approval of God. I would be devastated not to have God. I need God. I'm, it's okay to say it, obsessed with God. And nothing else. So two questions now. Assuming that most of you are spotting somewhere this fear of man. I see it in my life. I'm sure many of you see it in yours. So two questions. Question number one. Why is this? Why do people fear man? Why do Christians of all people? Why does it just go away when you and I became a Christian? Why do I fear man? Wouldn't you like to know the answer to that? For some of you, wouldn't it be an enormous relief to not care so much what people think about you? Can you imagine? Oh, to not care and worry what people think about me. It makes me so discontent. It makes me anxious. It, it makes me worried. It does that if your hope and trust is being placed in the opinions of other people, you will never be satisfied. You will be discouraged, depressed, exhausted. Christian, fearing man is a sin that leads to sin. Only God should have that power and sway over you. Why do I fear man? Why? I'm commanded to not fear man. I'm commanded to only fear God. Listen to these scriptures. Isaiah 51, 7 and 8. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Or Isaiah 41.10. Fear not. For I am with you, God says. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We must not fear man. We must only fear God. Remember how Jesus said it. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear And he means do not be controlled by. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So I'm commanded not to fear man. I'm commanded to only fear God. That doesn't seem to be enough. I'm miserable when I'm fearing man, and I'm not fearing God. So again... Why do Christians fear man? 
So here are a few reasons, and then a bottom line reason. And we'll look more closely at them. But here could be a few reasons. Maybe there's, for some of you specifically, past experiences. Past experiences that lead you to fear man and not fear God. Maybe it's pride. It's just thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. And it's trying to get everyone else to think as highly of you as you do. Maybe it is a wrong view of yourself. Specifically, maybe it's a wrong view of what you really need in this life. Maybe it's a wrong view of other people. We'll look at each of those. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line, why do people fear man? The answer is this. We fear man because we do not fear God enough. We fear man because we do not fear God enough. We replace God with people. We want to say, we should say, we want to be able to say with the Puritan Stephen Gardner, I fear God and therefore I have no one else to fear. That's the summary. That's the Isaiah summary. Fear not. I fear God, therefore I have no one else to fear. But I don't fear God. God the way I should. And this is why I fear man. So second question. This is where I think we want to get to. How do I stop this? What's the formula? It's not that simple. How do I stop fearing man? So three things. I just pointed them out, and then we'll look to each of them. Number one, we need right views of ourselves. Number two, we need right views of other people. And number three, we must know and grow in the fear of the Lord. And let's take those one at a time to the Bible. We need right views of ourselves if we're going to stop fearing man. We need right views of the people we're fearing if we're ever going to stop fearing man. And most importantly and ultimately, we must know and grow in our own fear of God. So one at a time, number one. We need a right view of ourselves. We think too highly of ourselves. We've talked about this before. We, we live, I think we all know this, we live in a culture that helps us to think very highly of ourselves and encourages us to think very highly of ourselves. It always tells us that the problem is out there somewhere. The problem is never in here. The problem is out there and the solution is in here. And the Bible says the problem is in here and the solution is out there. 
So it's very different. We have to think so differently. The way we see everything gets turned upside down when we become Christians, when we start reading the Bible, when we start hearing truth. It changes everything, doesn't it? Including how I view myself. Now, I said this specifically. Specifically, how I view myself needs to change in regards to what I think I need in this life. So let me ask the question for you to think about. What do you think you need in this life? And then we'll take our needs to the Bible and see what it has to say. So just think for a minute. What do I think I need? Right or wrong? Here's some things I came up with. I think I need love, acceptance, significance, respect, belonging, admiration, meaning, and so on. I think I need those from other people and ultimately from God. I think those are things that I am built to need. I tend to think that those are essential human needs. Many of you were taught this in college. Certainly if you took any psychology courses... These are basic, essential human needs. I need love. I need acceptance. I need significance. I need to belong. I need meaning and on and on. And personally speaking, yes, I think I need those things. Why do you think I prayed that prayer before I come up and preach? Why would the pastor preach, oh God, help me not to be after the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God? Because when I come up here, I need you to like me. I need you to accept me. I need you to think I'm a great pastor. I need that. And I'm tempted to do Whatever I need to do to secure that from you. You know what it used to be for me? Those who have been here for eight years and would compare sermons today to sermons eight years ago, it used to be humor. I'm never funny anymore. I'm like, why aren't you funny anymore? It's so boring. I used to come and laugh, and I still remember this joke. That's why. That's why I can't do that anymore, because you remember the joke more than the point of the sermon. Oh, but I'm addicted to your laughter. I love that. I want that. A sinful tendency of mine. I crave that. And so I'm tempted. I've even had to apologize in the middle of sermons. And ask the forgiveness of people listening to the sermon. Because I literally, in the sermon, crossed the line. Why? Why did you do that? Fear of man. 
There are people in my life that I, I need, well, I'll just tell you, I need my family. I think I need my family to think I'm the greatest husband and the greatest father ever. Ever. Past, present, future. Oh, Father, not only are you the greatest father in history, I cannot imagine there ever being a greater father than you are to me. I think every husband and father would say they desire that. But I see in me, I desire it way too much. I want it way too much. And it might just cause me to sin. And it has caused me to sin. Here's the modern view. I am a cup. Have you heard this? I'm a cup. You're a cup. And I need to be filled by others. Now, this sounds really good, but I want to take this to the Bible. I am a cup, and I need to be filled by others. My basic needs are love and significance. If these are not met, I feel empty. And as a Christian, I must be careful who I look to in order to have these needs met. And ultimately, I must look to Christ to have these essential human needs met. What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say you need? Well, it is good and it is normal to desire love. Kind of weird if you didn't. It's a normal desire, isn't it? A normal human desire to want to be loved by others, to want to be accepted by others, to have a sense of belonging. But friends, listen, you do not need that. You're not an empty cup. You desire people to love you? Of course. Desire to be accepted, desire to be respected, desire to be admired and even better, admirable, desire to belong, desire the approval of others. Understood. But friends, listen, you do not need it. Now, just that should be very good news to those of you who have not been loved or loved well. Because that would communicate that it's pretty hopeless. Well, you have these basic essential human needs and they didn't get met and now you're screwed up. That's not true. That's not what you need. What do I need? What does the Bible say? Well, I have biological needs. I need food. 
I need water. I need shelter. Those are my basic needs. If I don't have those things, I will die. So you have biological, physical needs, and you have spiritual needs. Makes sense, right? The Bible says you are a body and a soul. And so your body has needs and your soul has needs. Your body needs food and water and shelter. What about your soul? What does your soul need? Here's the problem for your soul. We are dead in sin. That's my soul's problem. Apart from Christ, I am dead in sin. Sin is your greatest need. Sin is your greatest problem. Not psychological needs that are not met. Let me quote Ed Welch. Think about this with me. This is whether you realize it or not, very controversial even amongst Christians. The main reason why there is an epidemic of emptiness is that we have created and multiplied our needs. He asks, so other than forgiveness of sins, do we have any needs? Do we need relationships or not? The answer depends on what you mean by need. If we are talking about psychological needs, then no, we do not need relationships with God or people to fill our longings for significance and love. He's saying, and the Bible is saying, you don't need that. That would be like saying that I need God to meet my need to feel great and important. Self-serving needs are not meant to be satisfied. They are meant to be put to death. Friends, Jesus died to take away our sin, not meet our unmet needs of love and significance. Jesus did not die to increase our self-esteem. Jesus died to glorify the Father by redeeming sinners. And today you need Jesus and his forgiveness. So what do I need? We need to understand ourselves, human beings. What do you need? Food, water, and Jesus. That's what you need. I need to be loved by these people. I need to be accepted. Oh, I hope you are loved by them. I hope you are accepted by them. I hope you do feel like you belong somewhere. I hope you have experienced as close as you can get to unconditional love in this world. But you do not need that. You need to be forgiven of your sin. And so you need food. You better eat. And you need water, you better drink. And you need Jesus. You better come to Jesus. Amen. 
If you have not come to Jesus, I hope you do this morning. I hope you see yourself in this sermon. I hope you see how you're controlled by the world around you and the thoughts of people around you and the opinions and the approval of those around you. And I hope you see that as fearing man and not God. I hope you're convicted of that this morning. And I hope you see that the God who stands willing to judge that sin also stands willing to save you and forgive that sin. But friends, you must come to him. You must believe this good news. You must confess this good news. And you must commit your life to Christ. If you haven't, and you want to come to Christ this morning, I'll be up here at the end of the sermon, and I'd love to talk to you. I would love to talk to you. Secondly, we need a right view of others. So I get my view of myself squared away. Y'all are going to have less control over me because I don't need you. I desire things still, especially for my wife, especially for my kids. But I'm going to fear man less if I come to understand about myself that I do not need you. I need Jesus. So you're probably already there. How does that change the way I view others? Like, why are you all here? What are you for? <laughs> you ever thought about that? I mean, no, you know what you're here for. I know what I'm here for, and we just kind of figured that one out. But why is there all there other people on the planet? Why isn't it just me? What are other people for? What are your friends for? What are your neighbors for? What are your coworkers for? What is your church family for? What's your spouse for? What are your kids for? Are they here to love you or are they here for you to love? You see how the Bible changes everything? We're getting different answers to questions that we've been asking our whole life. Wait, maybe they're not here for me. Maybe I'm here for them. Are you all here to love me and prop me up or am I here to love you? Does the Bible ever call you to secure love from anyone? Does the Bible call you to love others? Yes. Does the Bible in Ephesians 5 say, Husbands, make sure your wives respect you. Wives, make sure your husbands love you. You see the difference? That's not what they're there for. She's there for you to love. He's there for you to respect. According to modern psychology, we need others to love and accept us. According to the Bible, we need others to show love and acceptance. It's very different. People, friends, are not for fearing. They are for loving and serving. 
We need to need other people less and love other people more. Oh God, I want to need all of you less and love you more. And finally, in the the bottom line, number three, we must know and grow in the fear of the Lord. And I hope you're with me. I mean, what is the ultimate remedy for this fearing of man? I've got a better understanding of myself. I've got a better understanding of others. But the big remedy is I need to fear God more. I need to know the fear of the Lord. I need to grow in the fear of the Lord. People are too big and God is too small. My view of God is not big enough and my view of others is too big. And when I think about and when I'm consumed with the greatness of God, I'm not fearing man. I'm fearing God. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves and what we want and get our eyes onto God. God is awesome. You and I are not awesome. God is glorious. You and I are not glorious. And the person who sees that and the person who fears God will fear nothing else. So we need thoughts in our mind like Psalm 8, 3 and 4. Right? Big God. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That scripture does not boost my self-esteem. Nor does any other scripture. But what does it do? It leaves me amazed and humbled before God. It gets my eyes where they need to be. It gets my fear where it needs to be. It gets my commitment and my love and my faith where it needs to be. I need to see God as who He is in light of who I am that I may deeply revere Him and long to please Him in all things. And not people. A very, I think, practical application of this. We need a daily tradition of growing in the knowledge of God. If you don't, Sunday is it is not enough. There are way too many men and women for you to fear. Monday through Saturday. 
We need a daily tradition of growing in the knowledge of God. The key to learning the fear of the Lord is to stay in Scripture. And to bump into Psalm 8 after Psalm 8 after Psalm 8 after Psalm 8 all over the Bible and be reminded, get perspective over and over and over again. You need to be in the Word of God where you will get a right view of who God is. If you have a right view of who God is, you will fear God and you will not fear man. When your mind and when your heart, just like me, when it is filled or being filled with the greatness of God, there is less room for the question, what are people thinking about me? That question becomes hilarious. If you're grasping the greatness of God, you're not thinking about what other people think of you. This is what is so helpful in our sermon text that was read at the beginning, Jeremiah 17. Friends, you need to send out your roots to the stream. to the Word of God, to Jesus. Get your views straight. Get your perspective right and fear God. Let me read those verses again. There's two men in this verse, the one who fears man and the one who fears God, or the way Jeremiah puts it, the one who trusts in man and the one who trusts in God. First, what about the man who trusts in man? Cursed is the man who trusts in man. And makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. And as you fear man, you've experienced that. You're just getting tossed. You're like a tumbleweed in the desert, just getting tossed all over the place. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord or who fears the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water. What does he do? What do you need to do? That sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Cursed is the man who fears man. In conclusion, let me ask you these three things as you examine yourself. What do you need? What or who controls you? Where do you put your trust? Maybe think about those this week. Personalize them. What do I need? What or who controls me? Think about the people that you say make you angry. It's a funny choice of words we use, isn't it? 
you make me angry. No, I make me angry. And I'm letting you control me. So what do I need? What do I think I need? What controls me? And where do I put my trust? The answer to all three will be the same. And the answer to all three should be God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know our temptations and you know how we struggle in our faith and in our walk. You know, God, that we often feel like we need things from other people and if we don't have them, we'll, we won't survive. God, you know that we struggle with letting those things that we think we need control us and control our words, control our thoughts, control our behavior. God, and we're coming to see in your word that ultimately that means we're trusting in these things, that we're fearing these things, that we're being controlled by these things. And God, we know we should only fear you. We should only be controlled by our desire to please you. We should only trust in you. And our spirit is willing, God, but our flesh is weak. Will you help us? Will you take the truth that we've been reminded of or maybe heard or learned for the first time today? And would it change us? And may we become more honoring to you today. Fearing you more and fearing others less. We ask for this help in Jesus' name.